Several years ago, I did some premarital counseling for a couple who are not a part of this church. They're not born again, but they were uh, kids that I had watched grow up. I knew them for years. I knew it was real love. They were going to be faithful to each other, even though they're not Christians. It was going to be a, was a good marriage and so on. So I agreed to do their wedding. And as I do with all couples that I marry, we did premarital counseling. And in that, we talk about finances and in-laws and family issues. And we always talk about sexual history and issues that may have come from childhood or abuse or just medical issues, whatever. So in the process of this conversation about sexual history, I asked this young man, both of these people are in their early 20s, I asked him how many girls he had been with. And he gave me an honest thought And he said, well, I don't know really, but maybe 14 to 17. And I was shocked because I'd known him since he was a kid. He's a good kid, but I couldn't believe that number. And I know he wasn't exaggerating it for some macho-ness because the girl he wants to marry is sitting right next to him. So I believed him, and I said, so you understand what marriage is. This is an exclusive lifetime commitment, and you're willing to give up all of that and be completely faithful to her for the rest of your life. And he said, yeah. And it was true. I, I knew it was true. I, this wasn't uh, anything that I was picking a fight over or that I thought, I, oh, now I can't marry them in good conscience. I was shocked that the number was that high. And he just said it real matter-of-factly. And so as the conversation continued, I, I just had to go back to that. And I said, do you feel anything about that? I thought maybe there should be some guilt about laying 17 girls and then leaving them in the dust and moving on to the next one. And who knows how many hearts and lives and bodies he had ruined. And, and I, he gave me a look I will never forget for the rest of my life. I will remember that look, and it is the foundation of this sermon. He, it wasn't anger at all when I asked him, do you feel anything about that? It wasn't anger at all. It was just total dumbfounded curiosity. Like that had never once occurred to him that he should feel anything about that or think anything about that. And that it still wasn't occurring, even though I had asked the question, it, it was not, there was zero conscience turmoil whatsoever. And, and this is not some hard-hearted, evil kid who preyed on girls. He was just nice, intelligent, had money, he was good-looking, and I guess the girls liked him. I, I don't know, but he didn't, he honestly did not understand my question, and he honestly had no response Well, Romans 6.20 has something to say about that, kind of explains what's going on there. Romans 6.20 and 21 says, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. It's Paul writing, but it's the word of God. God says, when people are slave to sin, which is anybody outside of Christ, when people are outside of Christ, their conscience is free with regard to righteousness. 
There are people, obviously, in the world who are not born again, but they know some of right and wrong, and they may feel bad when they violate what they know is wrong. And I understand that people in the world have pain from their bad decisions, and they, they break their families, and they get health problems and whatever. For, so they know that things are right and wrong. I'm not saying that. But by and large, somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit inside of them doesn't feel anything about their own guilt because their conscience is not turned on. And I would guess that everybody in the room here, you have a past that Paul says, now, after you're in Christ, you are ashamed of. But when you were back there, hey, it was fun. It was cool, it was harmless, or it was everybody else's fault, or whatever. I don't need a show of hands, but I already see people nodding. Whether all of us, whether you grew up in a Christian home and were taught right and wrong from your very earliest days, or whether you were a complete wild pagan, and Jesus got a hold of you and grabbed you, dragging, kicking, screaming into into his kingdom, regardless of how radical or slowly you got saved and sanctified, you have a past. Things that you used to do that you have repented of and you don't do anymore, because now... Not then, but now you understand they're wrong. Or maybe before you understood maybe that they were wrong, but you didn't really feel anything about it, and you certainly weren't committed to actually changing. Paul says here, when you were a slave to sin, you didn't feel a thing about it. It didn't bother your conscience. This kid's conscience is completely untouched by the fact that he has laid 17 girls and then left them in the dust to move on to the next one. Had no recollection that that would be wrong, that that would be hurtful to them. Leaving destruction in his wake, but that's what every guy does. No big deal. That's how people in the world, that's how we function. That's wrong? Who says? (laughs) And then, now, Paul says, all of us used to be there, in that conscienceless state where we were unbothered by what we did wrong, and now that you have come into Christ, you are ashamed of that past. So I'm here to tell you this morning probably the exact opposite of what you have ever heard. You've probably heard 50 worship songs and maybe as many sermons about the fact that Jesus comes to take our shame away. I'm telling you, he comes to put shame on us. Stay with me till the end. If you leave now, you're going to be really angry. Because listen, if I take this young man, now they've been married a certain number of years. He's a good husband. He's a hard worker. He's a good dad. I mean, for a man in the world, he's he's as good as it gets. Uh, But if I could take him from where he was that day where I should have a conscience, if I can take him from there to where he is born again and saved, Somewhere in that process, it's going to hit him. What's going to hit him? Shame and pain that I have disobeyed God. I have ruined these people's lives just in this one area. Who knows what about the rest of his character? Somewhere in there, he's going to get smacked with a Mack truck of guilt. And that is the Holy Spirit. 
That is the Holy Spirit. That is the gospel. That is the truth of the word of God coming into somebody's heart and turning the conscience on. Now, thank God that is not where he leaves us. We'll get there in an hour. But I'm here to tell you now that the gospel brings shame, which is why people in the world who don't want to repent hate it so much. The truth turns on the conscience. And that's what would have to happen with this man if I were able to take him from the complete, utter cluelessness that any of that was wrong to where he's on his knees, repenting, asking Jesus to save him and remove his guilt. Somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit, the truth, the word of God will bring guilt on him. That is the work of grace. That is the beginning of repentance. It is the first step of salvation is that God loves us enough to smack us with the truth. And it really, really hurts. And it's not wrong. But many people don't want their conscience turned on because it makes them feel ashamed. You may or may not have heard back in November there was a student at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. It's a Christian school where they require their students to go to chapel services. And a professor in chapel spoke about spoke out of 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, what more unoffensive scripture could there be than 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love? And the professor spoke on love, and afterward the student wrote a letter to the faculty of the school, and I heard that he'd threatened with a lawsuit, but I don't know that that's exactly true. But he complained to, that the chapel had made him feel guilty, that he wasn't loving enough. And he actually had the immaturity to complain that they had convicted him. And I heard, I said I heard, that he threatened with a lawsuit because it wasn't a safe space. This is back when Missouri University and Yale and others were having these riots and the students were trying to take over the schools. And they, He said that the chapel made him feel guilty. So this same month, the president of the University of Missouri resigned because of the crybabies at his university. President Piper at Oklahoma Wesleyan blew a gasket. <laughs> and he wrote an open letter to his students and to the entire American public, and he said this. If you want the chaplain to tell you that you're a victim rather than to tell you that you need virtue... This is not the university for you. If you want to complain about a sermon that makes you feel less than loving, if you're not showing love, then this is the wrong place. If you're more interested in playing the hater card than you are in confessing your own hate, if you want to arrogantly lecture rather than humbly learn, if you don't want to feel guilt in your soul when you are guilty of sin, if you want to be enabled rather than to confront, there are many other universities in the land, in Missouri and elsewhere, that will give you exactly what you want, but Oklahoma Wesleyan isn't the one for you. At Oklahoma Wesleyan University, we teach you to be selfless rather than self-centered. We are more interested in you practicing personal forgiveness than political revenge. We want you to model interpersonal reconciliation rather than foment personal conflict. We believe the content of your character is more important than the color of your skin. And we don't believe that you have been victimized every time you feel guilty. And we don't issue trigger warnings before our altar calls. This is a, not a daycare, it's a university. So this student actually, shockingly, 
complained that a chapel service had made him feel guilty. So somebody would say, well, Mitch, okay, so you're using this word shame and saying the gospel brings shame, but what you really mean is conviction. You mean the Holy Spirit brings conviction. You don't mean shame. No, I do mean shame because that's the Bible word. Paul, God, in Romans 6.21 says, we are now in Christ, we are ashamed of what the things we used to do. Conviction is the knowledge and understanding that something is wrong. Shame is the feeling of embarrassment and regret about doing it. And I say that both are required for complete repentance. People's resistance to repent is actually, it's really a resistance to shame that they would feel if they admitted they're wrong. Because the fact that people are experts in justifying and excusing their sin is proof that they know it's wrong, but they're just refusing to feel the shame of it. And Jesus said this in John 3. Jesus said, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus said, these people, I said, I'm the light of the world. He said, these people won't come to me because they know they're wrong, but they don't want to be exposed. If they weren't afraid of being exposed, it would be because they didn't know they were wrong. But Jesus said they, they won't come because I will show that their deeds are evil. In John 7, he said, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And people don't want to hear that. There are people, though, who respond with humility and truth. In Acts 2, a sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching. The whole chapter is the sermon. But the very end, Peter says this to the crowd of thousands. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter is preaching after they've come out of the upper room with tongues of fire and they're speaking in tongues and they get everybody's attention because things are so wild and chaotic. And Peter stands up and says, hey, Jerusalem, we're not drunk. We're full of the Holy Spirit of God. And he preaches this sermon and not one time does he mention the love of God or the forgiveness of God. Not one time. But he does say two times, you killed the Son of God. He didn't pull any punches. He tells them exactly what they did wrong and why they need to repent. And their response is, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart with the sword of the word of God. And you can hear the near panic in their reply. What are we going to do? These people had been waiting 4,000 years for God to send the Messiah. And Peter gets up and says, God sent him and you killed him. They're on the verge of panic. What are we going to do? Peter says, there is still hope. You can repent and be baptized. And he is returning. Then, after the people have been cut to the heart, after they have realized their guilt, then Peter brings up forgiveness and baptism. He does not tell people who have not repented that Jesus is their biggest fan and God loves them unconditionally. He tells them, you are guilty. And you need to repent. If you have not been 
on the verge of panic about your own damnation, I would tell you you need to go back to the closet, the prayer closet, I mean. You can hear it in this crowd. If you are really cut to the heart, you will realize your own complete inadequacy without Jesus. There have been times when I have felt the weight of my own sin and been so brokenhearted about what I've said or done or how I've hurt Sarah or the kids with my words or whatever that my heart will stop and it's hard to breathe and I, I feel it. I am hopeless without Jesus because I am a screw-up <laughs> and I have no other hope. In Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and the despised others. Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So this Pharisee who had the reputation in Jesus' day of being the ultimate religious people, it's funny, it's interesting, Jesus said he prayed with himself. He didn't pray to God, he prayed with himself. Because all he's doing is bragging to God about how good he is. And then Jesus uses the example of a tax collector who in Jesus' day were the most hated people because they were the most corrupt, selfish people that Jesus could use as an example because they were Jews that had sold out to the Romans to collect the taxes from the Jews for the Romans. So they were seen as national traitors. I'll leave comments about IRS agents and BLM administrators aside. But he picks this tax collector, and he's the worst person that his audience would have identified with, and he says, the tax collector won't even raise his eyes to heaven when he prays. He bends over and in tears he beats his breast and says, God, please have mercy on me. And Jesus says, that guy, as evil as he is, he goes home forgiven and right before God. And the other guy who's a pretty good guy is damned. And I asked you this a year or two ago, and I meant it in complete dead seriousness. How long has it been since you were so brokenhearted about your sin, since you were so angry at yourself that you hit yourself in sorrow for your sin? Jesus says that guy goes home right before God. I mean it. Have you ever? been that brokenhearted? Have you ever mourned your sin that deeply? Talking about some self-hatred psychosis. Talking about being, this guy is in passionate, emotional repentance. Begging God for the mercy he knows he doesn't deserve. Jesus says, that's how I want you to pray. That'll get you forgiven. Have you ever done that? The realization of our own sin and guilt is a humiliating and painful thing. And it is the Holy Spirit that does it. And I say that like Peter on the day of Pentecost, if we want real Holy Spirit revival and real salvations, we have to 
let the Holy Spirit cut people to the heart. Not go out and pat them on the back. Jesus said, whoever is forgiven much, loves much. And the opposite would be true, that if you excuse and minimize your sin, you have minimal love. If you want to know how much Jesus loves you, be honest about how bad you are. And you will know how much he loves you. But your gospel gives free love and forgiveness without shame or guilt. But if there's no shame, then there's no honor and there's no forgiveness and there's no freedom. There's just a cheap and easy, worthless love that everybody gets. The Holy Spirit has to prick our conscience so that we can realize and then repent. Some will realize and then refuse to repent, but that's not because we did it wrong. It happened to every Old Testament prophet. It happened to Jesus. It happened to every apostle. I am not talking about, when I use the word shame, I am not talking about self-hatred. I am not talking about depression. I'm not talking about some religious self-condemnation that puts self down to get attention. There is a religious kind of person that brags about how bad they are because they think that's humility. Do you hear me? I'm not talking about that. I'm certainly not talking about shame that attaches itself to people who have been abused. People who are molested as kids or raped, they get shame terribly on them because of what somebody else did, and that is not what I'm talking about. That is not the Holy Spirit. That is not God. What I am talking about is being embarrassed to sin before God and other people. It should be a shameful thing to do wrong. But Mitch, we're supposed to have a culture of honor. We shouldn't be shaming people with their sin. We should be winning them with honor. Yes. But there is no honor if there is no shame. Just like you could never ever describe color and light to a person who was born blind. Because they don't know the opposites. You cannot define light unless you can define darkness. But a blind person has never seen either one. You can't say what silence is unless you can define sound. You can't define hot without defining cold. And you cannot define honor without defining shame. And if we remove the shame of sin, as our culture is trying to do, and the church is going right along with it, then we make honor meaningless, and it's worthless because we give it equally to everybody. The Proverbs 3.35 says, The wise shall inherit honor, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. So let's talk about honor for a little bit. You should care about your honor. You should care about your reputation. Religion will tell you that that's bad, but it's not. Proverbs 22.1 says a good reputation is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. There's an old Norse proverb from the Vikings that says it's better to be without silver than without honor. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says a good name is better than fine perfume. To be concerned with your reputation is not a sin. To be a hypocrite about your reputation is a sin. To be somebody different at home than you are in public is gross. You better have integrity and be the same person at home as you are in public. So religion is false. Politics is a sin. These people who say one thing in public and then they're another thing in the back room, that's gross. But to care about your reputation is good and godly. 
pride and the fear of man are sins, but to desire honor from God and from his people is right. God says it's more valuable than money. Your good name is more important than your money. And your reputation, your honor and dignity, your respect from other people should keep you from sinning. Because the kind of person that says, I'm going to do it my way, and they flip off the world and the family and God and says, I don't care what you think, is always sinning. They are always going deeper into sin, and they're always isolating themselves. Somebody who doesn't care what other people think, that's not freedom and wisdom. It is gross pride and rebellion. And it always ends in disaster and pain. The shame of sin should stop you from it. But the church and the world have worked together to remove shame from sin, so public figures and politicians and celebrities can do the grossest, most perverted deeds without suffering any shame or losing their career. Homosexual sin spreads in a shameless world because kids can experiment without being embarrassed. In fact, they're maybe more cool. But Ephesians 5, God says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. God says sin is so shameful, it's shameful even to talk about it. And from nightclubs to government offices to sorority parties to meth kitchens and slave traders to porn stars... From a hookup in a hotel room to a backwoods kegger, there are billions of secrets that are just too terrible to even talk about. You know, my, my mom tells me that when she was a girl, my grandma would not even say the word divorce because it was so terrible. My grandma would say the D word and she would whisper it because it was such a horrible thing. And those of you who've lived through it, you know it is. It ripped your heart out. American society, 100 years ago, the divorce rate was 5%. Why? Because anybody that did it was ashamed. And now we've removed shame, and it's really easy to destroy a family. I've had to have discussions with my kids that have defiled them and me. Because it is a disgusting thing that my 10-year-old knows what homosexuality is. But I have to talk about things that junior high kids are doing. My kids should not know some of the garbage that goes on in the world, but they do because of the music industry that we don't let them listen to at home but they hear it at school we don't let, we're very very careful about movies and things like that but they don't know half of it but we have had to have some discussions that Sarah and I did not want to have but we have to parents you have to you can't let the world tell them what's right and wrong it's shameful even to speak about it so people in the world don't know it because their conscience is free not turned on but sin is shameful 
If you're having sex with somebody you aren't married to, shame on you. Stop it. If you're in adultery, shame on you. Quit. If you've got a porn addiction, you should be very ashamed. Jesus isn't going to take that away until you repent and quit. If your children are undisciplined and uncontrolled, you should be embarrassed. Because Proverbs 29, 15 says, The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. If your mouth is quick, you should be embarrassed. If you have a critical spirit, you can't say, Well, that's just me. People will understand. No, you're embarrassing yourself. Repent. Mitch, you're being awfully judgmental this morning. This is condemnation. No, there is not one ounce of judgment and condemnation in my words or in my heart because I am on that list. I have a lot that I'm ashamed of. I have done so much that I would be humiliated if you knew. I'm not judging anyone. But I am saying that for people who are not repentant, the Holy Spirit does not lift off the embarrassment and shame of sin until you repent. I told you stay with me till the end. If you are humble about your sin, you know that it is shameful. But if you're not humble about your own guilt, if you're refusing to admit that what you're doing is wrong, then you are exactly who I am talking to this morning. If I'm making you mad, you are my target. There was a young lady in the church several months ago who came to me brokenhearted in my office. And just a couple of nights before, while she was at home, the Holy Spirit had told her in her heart, go and visit this person and say this. And she didn't. She rationalized it away. Well, that's probably not God. That's a wild idea. Or somebody else will say that. Or I'm unqualified. I don't. She had all these excuses. And the next morning she found out the lady had died in the night. Her disobedience was literally a matter of life and death. And she was broken hearted about her disobedience. I, in that situation, I as her pastor, I don't dare tell her it'll be okay God will forgive you she has to mourn her sin she has to bear the weight of her disobedience later yes we will say it's not the end of the world God will forgive you he loves you he doesn't reject you but I don't dare remove shame that she is feeling that is Jesus's job so you know what I said you're right that was really really bad don't ever do that again. And why did I have the authority to say that? Because I have done it lots of times. I have heard from God and disobeyed. And I know the torturous agony in my conscience afterwards. And it is not my place to ever harden someone else's heart to their own sorrow about their sin by telling them it's not all that bad. If they care that deeply and are that broken hearted, how dare I turn that off? So I let her be really upset. I did not 
put my arm around her with some cliche about, well, God, it'll be okay. God will forgive you, which is true. And I said that to her the next day. But for now, she needs to feel it. And it's not my authority to take it away. Jesus is the one who removes sin. Just two weeks ago, I had a young man who was sobbing to me about something he'd done. He was so brokenhearted about something he'd done. And in this case, it really wasn't a big deal. It was actually hard to keep a straight face because it really wasn't a big deal. It was not the end of the world. Uh, Lots of people have lived through this. Yes, he made a mistake. Yes, he had sinned. He'd blown it. But it really was not that big of a deal. But I don't dare tell him that because his heart is soft, his conscience is soft, and he feels really, really bad. And how dare I harden him and limit his repentance by telling him, hey, it's all right. Everybody's done it. You get over it. I have to let his mourning of his own sin play out. And the next day I did tell him, hey, listen, it's okay. It's really not that big of a deal. Lots of other guys have gone through this and, and we make it and you learn from your mistake and you don't do it again and you take it seriously. And yeah, but okay, you, you really didn't hurt anything too bad. It's okay. And then we restore him. But the shame, the guilt, the pain, the emotional response has to play out or I harden his heart. Four and a half months ago, I was dealing with a divorce situation where a man had uh, been cheating on his wife for most of a year. Uh, Four and a half months ago, their divorce was final. He had moved out and their teenage son had started using drugs to deal with the trauma and the drama around their home. The wife was an absolute angel. She was, oh man, was she shockingly gracious. But the husband, when he was confronted, was grotesquely defensive. He wrapped so many lies and excuses around what he had done that the question was kind of like, is this man even in touch with reality? Not one of his lies or excuses was, I didn't do anything wrong. He totally admitted he was 100% the reason. He was 100% the fault. No issues with understanding the truth of sin. But his hard-heartedness was a fortress around his heart so that he did not have to feel the pain of what he had done to his wives and his kids. Do you hear me? There's a difference between conviction and shame, and we've got to have both or we're not in repentance. You have to have an emotional response that beats your breast and says, God, I am in trouble if you don't have mercy on me. And this man flat out refused to feel anything. He did not deny he was wrong. He didn't deny that he was the fault. He even called himself a failure. But repentance will not come until this man allows the full weight of the shame of his destruction and he drinks that cup to the bottom. So I tell you this morning, quit being hard-hearted. Quit excusing your sin. Most everybody in this room will say that Jesus is your Savior and that you're a sinner in need of grace. But when your wife actually tells you, okay, now here's a specific sin you need to stop, well, then that's a whole other story altogether. Let's not get too crazy. 
When your husband says, you need, that's wrong and you need to stop it. Well, oh, now, wait a minute. I'm not that much of a sinner. Come on. You're totally comfortable with an impersonal admission that Jesus is Savior and that I am a general sinner. But actually beating your breast and feeling the pain of your specific evil. Well, we don't want that's a little extreme, Mitch. We don't need to go there. God loves us, He'll cover it all. Soften your heart so that you feel the shame and the guilt and the pain of your own pride and selfishness. Because Proverbs 11, 2 says, When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. If there is not some sort of a shame line that you have crossed that I described in the very beginning, where you used to do what you did without any conscience problem, and now you are saved and walking with Jesus, and if there hasn't been some sort of a line where you crossed you realize I was wrong and I caused destruction and pain in other people's lives, I disobeyed God, I hurt myself, if that hasn't happened, you're not born again. If there's been no measurable change in your life, in how you behave and how you think, how you treat the opposite sex, how you handle your money, if there's not a measurable change, you haven't crossed that line. You only have a mental assent that Jesus is Lord, and yes, you need saved, but Jesus loves you and forgives you, and that produces no emotional response to sin, no fear or embarrassment or conviction, then you need to mourn your sin and be afraid to sin and be ashamed to hurt another person or disobey God. Somebody would still say, Mitch, you're not saying what Jesus did. Jesus always dignified people. The father in the prodigal son story didn't shame his son. He received him with love and joy. Yes, let's think about what Jesus actually did and said. Jesus received the woman at the well and the woman who was snatched right out of bed in adultery. They drag her most likely naked right in front of him. Jesus is super gentle with these ladies because they're already repentant they're already broken but with the pharisees and the scribes and the sadducees and the lawyers he is brutal he publicly rebukes them every chance he gets he goes out of his way even to say insulting things just to get through to them because they would not break they would not admit that they were wrong so the son in the prodigal son story it says when he's in the pig pen he came to his senses That's it right there. That's humility. That's a broken heart. That is, I'm in the wrong place. What am I doing here? i got to get back to Dad. So when he shows up on Dad's ranch, Dad doesn't need to say, you are a loser, son, and I'm going to punish you a little bit. No, that's not God, because he's already humbled himself. But the Pharisees never would, except for maybe Nicodemus. And Jesus is ruthless with them. He doesn't hold anything back. He is not gentle. So there are people that we receive who are already broken in their own repentance and sorrow for their sin. We do not ever, ever load more on. Never. But there are people who just absolutely flat going to refuse what's right and wrong, refuse to obey God, and there has to be confrontation. The Pharisees of today are the 
gay activists that prey on our kids, abortion doctors that advertise to women, we will kill your baby for you. They have to be opposed with force. They need to be shamed. They will not be reached with gentleness. Jesus dealt with every person individually. He made a distinction based on the response of the person to their sin. And we are commanded to do that also. Jude 22 says, On some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. There are some people who come, they're so destroyed by the ravages of sin that they are already mush. They're brokenhearted, they're broken, they're repentant, they're at the end of their rope, and they need encouragement, they need faith, they need love, they need healing. There are other people, it says, though, you make a distinction, other people need the fear of God put on them. And you hate what they do so much, you don't even touch their clothes. We're commanded to make a distinction. And let me give you two stories that exemplify this, in my mind, the best. Two stories of the same sin handled in completely different ways that I say both are completely right. I apologize for those of you who heard these stories before recently because I know I've told them, but i got to do it again because this is the example. I was not in either of these situations. I'm just reporting them to you as I've heard them told to me. There is a church, I don't know where, I don't know this, this person, but there's a church where the youth pastor had an affair. It was a one-time deal, and he was so horrified and crushed and ruined by what he had done that he immediately, he went to his wife and confessed it all. He took her to the elders and the pastor at the church and confessed it all. With no coercion, no force, no cover-up, he gave it all, 100% broken-hearted honesty. The elders asked his wife, what do you want to do? She said, I want to stay with him, I want to be reconciled, I'll forgive him and we'll move forward. So they decided based on his, they could see him on the floor in a puddle of tears in front of them. They could see this guy is as brokenhearted and repentant about this as he needs to be. And there is no more good that's going to come out of telling the church. So they chose this. Son, we're going to put you on a real short leash. (laughs) And you will be 100% accountable with your whereabouts to your wife and to us. But there is no good in standing you up in front of the church and rebuking you and adding shame to your wife and making gossip and all this stuff that goes along with that. We will restore you in private. The opposite story is the one I told you this summer where my friend's dad was an elder in a church and he found out the pastor was having an affair and that the other two elders were covering for him. The guy was intentionally in unrepentance He's having an affair. He's got the other two guys covering for him. He refuses to admit his wrong. My friend's dad goes to the meeting and he says, I found out you're having an affair and if you don't tell the church, I'm going to. The guy says, no, I'm not going to tell and you're not going to do anything. And my friend's dad says, on Sunday, if you get up on the stage, I will tell the whole church. The other two elders said to him, if you do that, we will kill you. And on Sunday morning came and the preacher got up and my friend's dad walked right up on stage and said, you all need to know that he's having an affair and he's covering it up and these two elders on the front row are, are helping him. Both elders in the front row pulled out a pistol. My friend's dad pulls his jacket back and he's got a pistol on each hip. He says, I did not bring these 
to defend myself. Uh, if you go for my wife, I will shoot you. But if you want to kill me, I'm ready to die for the truth. This man is a fraud, and everybody needs to leave this building right now. And they did. I say, I don't know either story. I wasn't there, but as reported to me, as I've just told you, I say both of those are 100% correct. Because they're the same sin, but we make a distinction. Who is broken and who needs to be broken? Come on. Both of them are the same sin. But Jesus made distinctions in how he treated people. Jude tells us to make distinctions in how we treat people. Some we save with compassion and others need to be publicly exposed. Ephesians 5 says, expose the works of darkness. In the case of the youth pastor, he exposed himself. So the elders didn't need to. We don't need to add shame to that. It's going to be hard enough. He is repentant. He is honest and broken. So he's in a good place. The other guy would not admit he was wrong. He needed to be humiliated. He needed to be exposed as a fraud. And everybody needed to leave that church right then. So there are distinctions of brokenness or humility, even of age and maturity. The longer we walk with the Lord and the more mature we get, the more shame there is in sin. The Bible says so. But you know it's true. There's songs that a 16-year-old girl can listen to and vocabulary that she can like use like all the time, like that would be creepy if grandma did it. <laughs> if, if grandma's a Ariana Grande fan, we got problems, right? The older you get, the more mature in the Lord, the more shame there is in your sin, not less. Because Proverbs 25, 26 says, A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. That's every famous preacher that's ever publicly collapsed into hell. Ecclesiastes 10 says, Dead flies rot perfume and cause it to give off a foul odor, and so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. You couldn't get a dead fly in a perfume bottle today, but they didn't have spritzer bottles back then. They had little clay jars that they clapped their perfumes in, and if a fly got in and it ruined it. No matter how sweet and good the perfume was, one little fly would ruin it. And this verse says, so is just a little bit of sin for somebody who is respected as mature and godly. Come on. So I say there are distinctions of maturity and age and humility and brokenness and so on. Fifteen years ago, we were at home group at Richard and Donna's house, and we're all sitting in a circle, and Freedom is about this long and sitting in her little vibrating chair in front of the whole group, and we're talking and having home group. She gets all fussy, and then all of a sudden she grunts really hard, and there's an explosion in her diaper. <laughs> and then she was really happy, and all of us had a hilarious laugh. Do you remember this night? Yeah. Okay, so back then, it's totally appropriate, it's cute, it's funny, it, it broke up home group, it was hilarious. If it's happening now, we got a problem. She's 15. Uh, if it's happening now, we got problems. So Pastor Jeffrey from South Side of Heaven told me this story where uh, South Side of Heaven is a ministry of Faith Center Church downtown, and they specifically target um, people in recovery, they do celebrate recovery one night a week and then they do a church service one night a week and it's for people coming out of addiction to drugs and alcohol and, and, and these are raw, brand new baby, wet baby Christians and he said, one of the, he said the purest prayer I've ever heard in my life 
we were standing in a circle and we're all holding hands. And he said, this guy's holding my hand. He's squeezing it so hard, I, it's hurting. And he is praying the most fervent prayer. He said, this guy's been sober a few days. And he's gotten right with God and he is passionate and excited. And he says, he's squeezing my heart, hands harder. He says, thank you, God, for saving me. I'm sorry I'm such a blanking idiot. And thank you for Pastor Jeff. And he puts up with all my blank. And the guy drops an F-bomb in prayer <laughs> at church in front of everybody. And Pastor Jeffrey said, it is the purest prayer. There is zero shame. Because he meant it. And he didn't even realize it. Those of you who've been saved six months or more and you think it's somehow manly or meaningless to have a foul mouth, shame on you. You should not be talking that way. You know better. You're older. Pastor Jeff said that uh, in between their worship time and when he does his talk, I don't think they probably call it a sermon, but they have to have a smoke break. and Everybody goes out on the sidewalk to smoke <laughs> in the middle of church. And some people visited. He said afterwards they got, they, they, like, Pastor Jeff, you let people smoke during church? And he's like, they just got off meth two weeks ago. Praise the Lord. You don't need to get your religious panties in a wad because they smoke a cigarette. There is no shame. Praise God they're sober. There are distinctions. Of age and humility of brokenness and maturity. Think about it this way. If we bring a soldier in from the battlefield where an IED is just blown up and he's got 17 problems, I'm not a, obviously a military person or a nurse or anything, but I know that in triage they assess the person and they take the most serious thing first. If he's got an artery blown open, we don't care about his broken leg right now. Come on. We've got to get this artery sewn up so he doesn't die. And then later we'll deal with organ trauma or head trauma or a broken bone. Or his scuffed pinky nail. So, there are people coming out of the world who have been absolutely destroyed by Satan. We've got to close the arteries. And if they got other problems, we're not going to shame them for their other problems. We'll just deal with the broken leg later. If we can just keep them sober and out of each other's beds, we're doing really good. In Acts, there's a story where all of the Jews, all of the Christians are Jews. They know the Old Testament, and they know God's morality, and they know the laws for living. And then in the book, middle of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit starts bringing in non-Jews, Gentiles as they call us, People from Africa and Asia and Europe, and they're becoming Christians, and they don't know the Old Testament. They don't know God's morality. They don't know the law and all this stuff. And a lot of the Jewish Christians got all wadded up about that, and they're like, you have to follow all these rules. And some of the other Christians said, no, they don't. They're, we can't expect that of them. So the apostles had a conference in Jerusalem, the original church conference, and it was all the apostles who are all Jews, and they these wise men got together and they decided what really matters? What, what really matters that these people, they've got faith in Jesus, what do we really teach them? And they decide in their culture, in their day, the things that really mattered was you don't drink blood, you don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and no sexual sin. And that's it. 
And they decide if, if they'll just abide by that, that's all really the rules we need to impose. So the soldier comes in and he's got a ripped up artery on his leg or his neck. It's the same thing as somebody who comes in off getting clean off a of meth or, or a lifelong alcoholic or a, who knows, people that have just been destroyed by life. Let's address the stuff that's going to save their life. But there is distinction. There is no shame if they smoke the rest of their life. So what? At least it isn't meth. The person who has had zero boundaries with sex, if we can just get them to understand commitment and exclusivity and holy matrimony, That'll solve a lot of problems. That's a long ways. That's a big deal. That's good. Then later we do address the broken bones. There are lesser problems that we can take on. But there is a distinction. And repentance is not a once in a lifetime deal. It is continually, nearly daily necessity. Humility before God regarding our own sin is not a, well, I did that 20 years ago, so now I'm done. It is a regular thing in our daily walk with God that you are humbling yourself, allowing the teaching and the correction of the Word and the Spirit of God. And sometimes you realize that you have a habit or a way of speaking or a way of thinking, an unconscious lie or a rebellion or a fear or a rudeness about you that you've had all along, but you never even admitted it or never really saw it. But when you do see it for what it is, it's embarrassing. That is the Holy Spirit. And your heart is broken before God and whoever you've hurt. If that hasn't happened to you recently, even if you're 40 years Christian, that should happen very regularly. That conviction comes upon you. When it does, drink that cup to the bottom. Don't try to avoid negative feelings about your guilt. But if you fully embrace the truth of your inadequacy without Jesus, because the one who is forgiven much loves much. I'll say it again. If you really want to love Jesus more, look at how much he loves you and be honest about that. Again, I am not talking about self-hatred. I am not talking about depression. I am not talking about false religious humility. I'm talking about being soberly honest about how you really are. Listen to your parents. Listen to your husband and wife. You'll pick up some hints <laughs> about how you really are. The more honestly you admit your shame the more thankful and loving you will be toward God and other people. So the gospel that has covered the globe and worked for 2,000 years is, I know the song isn't that old, but it's reflected in the line of Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And 30 years ago, Phil Donahue said, you know what I, the problem I have with you Christians is that I am not a wretch. <laughs> All right, Mr. Donahue, we'll see how that works out for you. Because I am. 
I don't go around beating myself up. I don't hate myself. But when I'm before God, I have beat myself. It's certainly not every day or even every month. But Jesus said he beat his breast and begged for mercy. And that is the prayer that justified him. If you don't care who you hurt or that you are disobeying God, we call that a hard heart. If you don't admit your own wickedness, we call that a hard heart. But the good news, the gospel is, I am a wicked wretch. And I, Mitch Coaston, deserve to rot in hell. And I deserve nothing good. I am the cause of my own pain. I am the chief of all sinners. I know Paul said that he was, but that was 2,000 years ago. I've got him long beat. God is a just judge, and he has to condemn me. But Jesus. I said, but Jesus. Died for me. He went to hell for me. He met God's demands for justice. So when I repent of my sin and I don't excuse it or blow it off or hide it or justify it, I don't blame anyone else for my problems, I take full responsibility for my life and actions and I fully drink the shame of my own actions and thoughts if I am brokenhearted about the pain and destruction that my own selfishness has caused. Then Jesus says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Jesus said we're saved by faith. It doesn't take much faith to believe that God loves me and forgives me if I don't have much sin. I said we're saved by faith. Faith requires me to believe what I don't understand or see. Well, I don't understand or see what God sees in me. But by faith, I believe these promises, and I know they are true. So faith says God loves me and receives me as pure and clean as Jesus. I have no reason to hang my head in God's presence. I have no reason to be afraid of hell. I have no reason to carry shame that Jesus has removed. I am free, I am clean, I am honored, and I overflow with uncontrollable thankfulness. So there are those of you in this room who are ashamed of how you have behaved. You know what I mean when I say that. I'm not saying we live in the emotion of shame, but you know what I mean when I say that. You've admitted your past and you're not going back. That is repentance. That is humility. That is brokenness. That is saving faith. Others of you, you know right and wrong, but you've been trying to be in charge of your own life. You don't want to obey God because that would mean that I have to admit what I've been doing wrong and it would have to mean that I have to change what I've been doing. Repent now, this morning. Get right with God. The times have not changed. You have disobeyed. There's not a different standard. Admit it. Others of you, 
didn't know until this morning, right now. I'm here to tell you that if you will repent right now, this morning, Jesus will not put any other shame on you. If you humble yourself and admit that you're not doing it right, if you will admit that you need forgiven, that you need washed clean, that you need a change, there is zero shame. There is no guilt. There is reception with welcome arms. There is come as you are. We sang in that very first song by David Crowder that when you came in for worship today, there's a line in there that says, unspeakable things you have done. But nothing you've done can overcome the power of the blood. Come on! Somebody better get excited about that. Unspeakable things we have done, but there is nothing we have done that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. If you are someone who wants to stay in self-hatred and guilt and shame, you are saying that your sin is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. Well, I don't know how Jesus could ever forgive me. Believe it that he does. But it will not happen until you allow him to cut you to the heart. His sword is the word of God. I have pointed that right at you. I have put the sword tip on your heart. Walk forward. Come on. Here's his sword pointed right at you. And I don't know who you are. You know who you are. You're feeling conviction. You know there's something you need to change. His sword is right here. I just read his word to you. Walk forward. Let him cut you to the heart and you will find forgiveness and freedom and repentance. Don't go out of here with a hard heart this morning. Don't leave with secret sin. Don't live excusing your disobedience. It is not okay and you are not getting away with a damn thing. Your heart better burn with the fear of God. Do it right. Repent this morning. Get on your knees right here. You may come to your knees at the altar. You may just sit there and listen to this song if you want. Sarah's going to sing this song. I'm not going to ask anybody to bear any details. You get right with God. If you want to talk with me, if you want to pray with me, I will do it. I would be honored to. You will not be shamed if you humble yourself. Don't walk out of here with hidden sin.